welcome to another episode of Locked in Science. Yes, once again, it is Claire, Stu and Chris recording from our homes. Uh, I have just moved house the other day, hence the echoey kind of empty room sound you may be hearing from my microphone. Apologies for that. You haven't yet, I guess, um, created a room in your house that's just a padded cell where you can do locked in science, have you, Chris? N- not like you guys, no. No, no. No, mine's mine's a bit more comfortable. You know, padded cells are good, though. You can't hurt yourself. It's great. You can't help yourself and you make damn good radio. So what's not to love? Exactly. I recommend padded cells for everybody, particularly you guys. Um, so... We're just not going to let this um, this pattern cells or echoiness distract us. Uh, Claire, what have you got for us on this week's show? Well, um, this week we have a special guest, Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash, who is a fish biologist who uh, dedicates her time to researching um, shark uh, shark olfactory responses and shark smell. So remember when you were young and, um, you know, someone told you like, oh, don't go into the ocean if you've got like a wound or a cut or a graze or something like that because sharks can smell really well, right? They can smell a single drop of water or something, a blood in the water, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and a single drop of water as well. I mean, they probably can. Mm-hmm. But and, um, so, so Victoria's actually um, done her PhD research at, around this and um, what I guess the the sensory organs are and how they work because there um, there was a gap in the research around that so we're going to hear all about that and that's all part of um, she she was actually part of Pint of Science a couple of weeks ago which had to be taken um, online it couldn't be in the pubs this year um, as as we know so it's it'll be great to be able to talk to Victoria about her research as well um and hope and we look forward to getting back into the pub for partner of science next year fantastic so sharks have no nose oh uh i don't know about that i guess we'll have to ask her well how do they smell (laughs) fishy (laughs) oh they do they do smell fishy Meanwhile, Stu, what have you got this week? Well, you know, all sorts of things are happening in the world. And one thing that um, I thought I would have a look at is what's going on with flying spiders anyway? What's the deal with flying spiders? Is that it? That's right. Uh, yeah, I did, I did see something the other day. People were a bit concerned that they saw flying spiders. And I went... Spiders can't fly. They don't have wings. How is that even possible? I looked into it. Well, I maybe spoke too soon. So uh, I'm going to have a bit of a talk about flying spiders. And uh, why do some spiders seem to be able to fly? Uh, And I'll talk about that a bit later in the show. Great. Well, this is not just any show, of course. This is... um... This time of year, normally, we would be running our Radiothon show where we come into the studio live. And as I've already pointed out, due to the echoey sound you're hearing, we are not currently in the studio. We are at home. And so 3CR is still needs your support, but in a different way. We are holding a station appeal this year, and we are asking you, our 
much loved listeners to make your donations online. Yes. Yes, keep Lost in Science uh, locked in for another year, please. Um, we implore you. Are, are you saying if are you saying if they don't donate enough money they'll let us out? Is that what you're <laughs> trying to suggest? That's right. That is what I'm trying to suggest and I really want to get out. Look, we do understand that a lot of people are under a lot of financial stress, so we totally understand if you are not able to uh, to donate this year because, yeah, it is difficult for everybody. But if you are able to, it does something. It is something that helps to keep us on the air, helps to keep community radio on the air alive and well. Um, so, yeah, we do need the support that you are able to give us. Um, and as I said, we need listeners to donate online this year. We don't have people... Uh, sitting by the telephone as we normally do at Radiothon Time. So what you need to do is to head to our website, which is 3cr.org.au, and right on the front page you will find that you can click straight through and use your credit card to make a donation. Of course, all donations over $2 are tax deductible. Um, If you don't like that, you can also donate via Facebook and you can transfer funds. Find out about that on our Give Now page, which you can also reach through 3cr.org.au. And if none of that works for you, you can also still call the station on 94198377 and we will organise something to help uh, get your donation. But yeah, look, we, we love your support. Thank you for anyone's support. So thanks to those who listen because just by listening, you are showing your love for us being locked in, I guess. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Anyway, on with the show. So I can't remember when I first heard that sharks could smell one drop of blood in a whole beach, but it certainly had me thinking twice about swimming in the oceans with cuts or abrasions. But what does science really know about shark smell and how it works? Are shark noses really as sensitive as we think? Well, our guest on Lost in Science this week is very qualified to give us an answer to confirm or deny my childhood facts. Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash is a fish biologist and postdoctoral research fellow at Queensland University of Technology. Victoria, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire, for having me. So, Victoria, do sharks smell as well as we think? That's the very question and made me start my PhD. Um, So the main thing, I guess, to consider is when you assess um, an animal's ability to detect some signals, let's say olfactory cues in our case, Mm -hmm. you can assess it looking at how the olfactory system is organized. That's morphology. You can assess it looking at how it functions and that's, physiology right or you can look at how the behavioral outputs are displayed and that's more ethology so animal behavioral research and now you can add another layer actually that i forgot is uh, molecular biology you can look at the genetics side of things so depending on how many genes are expressed to actually do that task you can also assess it this way when I started my PhD research, I was interested in the holistic answer, right? Yes or no? Yeah. Yes or no? And yeah. I know, I know. That's, um, but when you dig down and you look at what's been done, what remains to be done, you kind of come up with an answer which is still in the gray area. 
Mm. Bluntly, there is no yes or no answers as just yet. It just depends on what you look at. So if yeah. you look at the genetics, for instance, like for fun facts, um, humans have roughly 800 olfactory genes, primates 600, um, mice 1400. Wow. Um, rats, even a bit more than that. Dogs, um, 1,100, so a bit less. Uh, cows, 2,000. Cows? Yes. So, <gasps> so far, they're topping it. All the fish, roughly 300 and something. Okay. And sharks, you go down to sharks, elephant sharks or other sharks, about 50 to 60 genes. So if you look at just the genetics, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of genetic information expressing receptors mm. able you know, to collect that in kind of information. But then when you look at the brain and the size of the olfactory bulbs compared to the, well, relative to the overall brain size, then sharks have quite big olfactory bulbs. So the brain area used to process that kind of signals, so odors, um, is relatively large compared to other animals. So that's another way to look at it. So morphology. Right. So yeah. that's, that's in morphology. You've got your genetics. Yeah. And then Most, you've got, yeah, your physiology as well. So in terms of physiology, for instance, the story is a bit different. Um, the sharks can have detection thresholds. So the minimum amount of chemical that can be detected. Quite low. So one part in a billion, for instance, for some of the Amazing. chemicals out there, like amino acids are some of them anyway. Um, so research showed that um, bony fishes are able to detect as low detection threshold for pheromones, for instance, as mm. feeding cues for sharks. So for sharks, we don't know uh, for the pheromones how low uh, that detection threshold might be. Um, that's a research happening right now by a good colleague of mine um, at EQ. So we're going to find out probably soon. The question is not out there yet. So if you want to look into this, um, my good friend Heather Middleton is looking at this at UQ and she's probably going to share that story when it's, when it's out there. Okay, so it sounds like shark smell is a lot more complicated than we thought, but um, they do have that morphological, that sort of like enlarged parts of the brain, um, even though they might not have as many genes as other different animals. So when you went into your PhD, what was your question and what, what were your sort of like research questions about shark smell? Yeah. So based on um, the recap you just did, um, I guess the, the main thing that we, we I stumbled upon and I, I really wanted to get down to knowing more about that was the morphology aspect. We seem to have done quite a lot of research on um, behavioral responses or physiological responses of some chemicals, but not necessarily how the system itself, the wiring to the brain or in within the brain was organized compared to other animals, which can answer one bit of the question, if you like, and hasn't been questioned yet as much um so that's the very question i, I tackled and I, I wish i had time to tackle more and i didn't in the end so I, I stuck to anatomy pretty much um and i guess with shark anatomy you need um to go and have a look at some sharks and look at their brains so Absolutely. Take, take us through um how you went about that 
they, that's a very good point, actually. So working on these animals is not necessarily easy because, yeah, you need to access some samples uh, or them uh, in nature. So I was lucky, you know, because I chose a lab, the Neuroecology Group, which was led by um, Professor Sean Cullen at UWA. When I started, um, he had a huge collection of, um, of shark samples in his lab amongst other animals, um, being a sensory biology lab. And so my other co-supervisor, Dr. Karyopak, uh, or Professor Shark Brain, if you want to call her this way. Professor Shark Brain. Yes, she's out there. She's <laughs> that based, is um, excellent. in North Carolina, uh, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington now. But she was at EWA as well when I started, and she had a huge collection of shark brains over there. So I guess she was the best way to start just um, working from sample off the shelves instead of yeah, going out there and, and um, having to apply for permits and euthanize more animals that, that was needed. And the actual sort of lab work that you then did, the comparative anatomy, or take us through what some of your experiments were like. Yeah, so going for anatomy is one thing, but then what questions exactly? So... Um, there is a, a, a nice body of research that has used the um, olfactory bulbs, so that part of the brain processing essentially olfactory information. So um, and this has been used as a proxy, or their size, their shape, or um, their volume has been used as a proxy for olfactory abilities across many animal taxa, um, including fishes. So that was the starting point, which was also a research area of my co-supervisor, um, Cara. She had extensively compared the size of these bulbs across many, many shark species and rays and even chimeras. And so the question was, okay, this has been accepted as one way of comparing across fishes, but do we know what it means? Because it's one thing to have a bigger brain structure, but if inside you don't have as many neurons because they're less densely packed, then maybe your processing power is not as great. And so the size might not reveal you what you actually want to test, you know. So that was one of the biggest questions we wanted to start with. So in trying to answer it, I came across a new technique to visualize brains. So MRI, same as for us humans, is one way to do it if you want to um, calculate the volume of a brain area. And it can be a very expensive technique if you have a lot of specimen to go through and not as handy because, yeah, the training and the access to the hospital is a limitation, obviously. So we came across um, that new technique um, using CT. So it's the same as a CT scan, same as humans or akin veterinary science, same kind of apparatus, but quite uh, for smaller samples, so really high resolution. But it had never been used, that imaging tool, to that application. So that was another thing. Let's try to use something new and see if we can get an answer, which we did. Right. So what, yeah, and then what did you find? So what did we found is that, to put it in a nutshell, the volume of um, the olfactory bulb was assessed using that technique su- successfully. So that was one win. Then we compared the olfactory bulb size across, well, two main representative fish species. So one cartilaginous, a, um, a cat shark. And right. One... So cat- and cartilaginous fish are um, fish-like sharks that have, they don't have bones. They have cartilage, right? More or less, yeah. They made 
their skeleton is mainly cartilage compared to bony fishes. And when we say cartilaginous fishes, also just a precision for those that might be listening and not in that um, field of research, we mean um, shark skates and rays. They call the elasmobranchs, but there is also chimeras and all of that are cartilaginous fishes. So right. coming back to your question, um, the main founding is that, yeah, we use that new, that novel imaging tool to get, the volume of the bulbs in the two representative species. But then we used an, another microscopy technique to get the number of neurons entering the olfactory bulb and exiting. So we could actually test if whether or not the volume was meaning something. And we did. We actually found that uh, in the cartilaginous species, there was much more neurons entering the olfactory bulb and they were packed the same as in the bony um, species, the bony fish species. So we could tell that based on how they are compacted or how dense they are, which was exactly the same between the the two different species, it was just based on a difference of neuron entering that brain area that that explained how the olfactory bulb was bigger. So what does this mean, I guess, for um, for the broader understanding of sharks? Well, that's an entirely new... it's not a discovery per se, but it's a new finding, let's say. Nobody has looked into, into that before and been able to justify that using the size of that brain structure is actually truly indicative of how much information they are processing. But that, that's just telling you a number, a capacity, if you like, of processing information. But it's not telling you how each neuron receiving the information and conveying to the brain Um, how tuned they are so that's more a physiological question if you like and a lot more work has been done in bony fishes and I couldn't go there during my PhD research but it still needs to be answered for sharks for sure so it's one thing to have the numbers so you have a lot of lot more connections apparently but then if you don't know how each connection is tuned to the signals you want to pick up then you also miss a part of the information so that big holistic answer I was talking to you about, about yes or no, either better or not, is still out there. Now, I'm really curious about what got you started in shark smell. Have you always been fascinated by shark? It's um, something that's always been there, for sure. Um, When I was eight or something like that, first primary school presentation to the class, um, it's daunting, you don't want to do it, but um, they're happy for you to talk about anything. And that's the first time that I talked about sharks. So everything, all the readings, all the books that my mom had bought me or friends of my mom who knew I was into that already. Um, I collected some information or fun facts or stuff, which is misleading. Oh, we don't know about those animals and how unknown they are. And yeah, that's how it started. So Victoria, as a, uh, shark biologist what what is one way i guess you know sharks cop a lot of flack for um being man eaters but you know what is what is one thing that you want people to understand um better about the nature of sharks uh the end the first answer that comes to my mind is part of your question is just to better understand them and to seek answers for things you 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 believe about them um they they're not that well understood and and to be honest even with the research conducted so far we certainly know more but even 
everything that I said to you today in our session, um, I can't blunt, I can't answer if yes or no, they are that good at smelling compared to other animals, you know? So I think there is a really a call to better understand them or try to, and, and to better protect and conserve them then. Um, because there is no way you can tackle big question as sustainable human animal interaction if you don't understand the subject and that's both ways. So we have a lot of information for the human side of the story, but for the animal side of the story, there is a lot to answer. So generally understanding more about their ecology or ways to reduce their captures in fisheries, which is their, their highest threat today, or just have, have, they are the awesome animals that they evolved to be throughout a million years. Um, yeah, it's probably my only take on message today. Um, well, Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash, uh, fish biologist, um, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today. Thank you so much for sharing your passion and your research into shark biology. And I'm certainly going to think differently next time I see sharks either diving or at the aquarium. Absolutely. I'm going to wonder a little bit more about their brain morphology and what they can smell right now. Thank you for having me again. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Now, most people, I would suspect, are wary of spiders, and some people suffer from the fear known as arachnophobia, which is a pathological aversion to the eight-legged arthropods. And look, maybe it's the way they move around in their scuttly way. Also a uh, great film of the 90s, am I right? Well, yeah, it was it was pretty great in the nineties. I'm not sure how the CGI is going to hold up. <laughs> do you mean do you mean arachnophobia or eight legged freaks? I meant arachnophobia. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but eight legged freaks was they were like mutant spiders, were they? They were giant spiders. Yeah. Mm. Whereas every uh, yeah. every good film should have a giant spider at some point. <laughs> Absolutely, can't can't agree more. Harry Potter, Lord of the yep. Rings. Eight-legged um, freaks. Eight-legged freaks. Giant spiders from Mars. Honey, I shrunk the kids. Well, that wasn't a giant spider. That was just a tiny person. It's all about... It's all relative. That's right. Stu, that's what I'm saying. Um, but, you know, look, maybe it is, maybe it is that not, even when they're not giant, uh, they do move around in a very disconcerting way. They have a really sort of alien body shape compared to us. Um, and maybe that's what makes people recoil when a spider scuttles out when you're tidying up or moving house, Chris, or out doing some gardening and suddenly you find a little friend perched on your glove. Um, or a large friend like the huntsman that, um, that I nearly moved the other day. Oh, he, he just wanted to come with you, I guess. Um, one thing most people can be thankful for is that spiders can't fly. There aren't any winged spiders in the world which is you know 
regardless of the level of our dislike, uh, they don't have the ability to zoom in out of nowhere and land on us like, say, moths do, which some people are equally terrified of. Not to mention cockroaches. Um, you know what, Stu? This is the first time that I've even, I guess, imagined the idea of spiders with wings. Um, so I guess thank you for putting that, um, that thought in my head. Now I can be thankful for that you'd never thought that, of before. You know, <laughs> now terrifies me that I'd never thought of before, but now terrifies me. Going to haunt my dreams. Thank you. It's it's all very well for us, but if you live in parts of Peru or Panama, um, scientists have discovered there a species of tree spider uh, capable of gliding and controlling their direction as they fall from the forest canopy. That's like Buzz Lightyear flying. Yeah, kind of. Um, it's 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 more of a glide than a you know powered flight kind of thing. But apparently, some species of selenops, which is a genus of spiders who live high in the jungle trees, they sometimes get attacked by various species of ants. Um, and in order to avoid the ants, they jump off the tree and go into freefall out of the tree. But it's been observed that they react to this by. Uh, returning themselves to an upright position and using their front legs to steer themselves towards <laughs> the trees that they can grab back onto, using their other legs as kind of wings to allow them to glide through the air. Um, so this was published in 2015 in a paper in the Journal of the Royal Society and it was called Arachnid Aloft, <laughs> Directed Aerial Descent in Neotropical Canopy Spiders. That's great. Um, and apparently some of the local... Ants in Peru and Panama can do the same thing. So there's flying ants, but there's actually ants with wings as well. So that's not as much of a uh, a breakthrough discovery. But these ones don't have wings and they can still do it. Um, so thankfully this is pretty well, you know, confined to limited species in particular environments. But there are a lot more species of spider that are able to become airborne and they live all over the world. Um, so the ability of tiny spiders to float around on wind currents has been observed, as I said, all over the world in numerous species of spiders. And they basically do this when they hatch from an egg. There's a whole lot of spiders in one place and in order to spread out, they become airborne and float around on air currents to new locations. Basically, they do that uh, to move into new territory, um, and that's to avoid competing directly with their siblings because sometimes there's hundreds of tiny spiders in a single egg sac, so they sort of have to spread out. Otherwise, they'll all starve to death, and they wouldn't be very good uh, for from a survival perspective so they basically spin out a short piece of web and they use that to float to a new location and this has been called ballooning they don't actually make a balloon but that's what they've called it um historically is ballooning of spiders it's more paragliding isn't it um only if they are humans and using a a, a, a <laughs> hang glider but yeah ballooning ballooning is just an old-fashioned term i guess um so the thread spun by the spider acts like, sort of like a wing or a kite. Uh, and if it's a long enough piece of web, it can carry the weight of the baby spider. And sometimes 
some adult spiders in some species can do the same thing. So they sometimes do it if they're in an isolated location and there's no um, other spiders of the same species around. They um, they do it to hopefully get to a, a location where there's mates that they can mate with. Um, but it's mostly just the baby spiders that do it. So the uh, the lightness and the strength of the spider web allows it to extend for long distances without breaking. And that's it's basically how adult spiders create the, the initial threads to bridge between two points to start building a web too. So it's the same process that they're doing. It's just that it doesn't attach to anything and it lifts them off the ground um, or off their you know launching point. Um, as I mentioned, it's been common to see spiderlings floating around on their web parachutes. Um, and it's often been thought, yeah, well, you know, there's, there's enough of a wind, enough of a breeze to blow them around, but they've also been spotted doing it on still days when there's not much air movement. So it might be that only very slight movements of air are enough to carry a tiny spider, but even under experimental controlled conditions, spiders have, spiders have been seen to be able to go ballooning. So how do they do it? with no wind well it turns out they have been using electricity according to an article in current biology which was published almost two years ago back in 2018 so uh, electric flying spiders (laughs) electric Electric flying spiders that is correct Um, so the atmosphere is full of electrical charge and spider ballooning in the absence of wind is possible based solely on the electrical differential of the air itself and of the thread of the web. So spiders don't just use a single strand, but they use multiple strands splayed out more like a web, or more like a wing, a web-like wing, um, rather than, you know, a rope. It's sort of a flat surface. And the electrical interaction with the wing creates lift on that wing, and it actually can raise them up in the air, and they can float around uh, on the base of that. Um, So it turns out, according to a paper from researchers at the University of Bristol, um, that the spiders can detect the appropriate electrical conditions in the atmosphere to alert them to when it's a good time to try and do this as well. So not only are they capable of doing it, they're capable of sensing, using their spider senses, which must be tingling, that it's, uh, you know, an appropriate uh, electrical um, conditions in the atmosphere for them to actually be able to do this. Now, a few months ago, I covered the breakthrough uh, of a powered flight using no moving parts and only the flow of electrons across a wire to create lift in a powered aircraft. Um, It seems that, once again, humans were beaten to the punch by nature and... uh, the spiders got in first. They knew all about this uh, a long time before we started trying to harness this technology. And that is it for Locked in Science. Now, Locked in Science is recorded at the homes of Claire, Stu and Chris. Um, normally, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR, Erin Cross Australia, the Community Radio Network, with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Um, we would love your support for 3CR if you're able to for our June station appeal. Remember that if you want to support us, if you're able to support us, please go to our 3CR website, which is 3cr.org.au and follow the instructions on how to donate. 
Otherwise, you can get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can also find us on your friendly podcast app, where if you're able to give us a good rating and review, we'd love that. That would um, make us look really good. Otherwise, you can just find us on the radio, where the same time every week, Claire, Stu, and Chris get locked locked in Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.